Toxin Psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society journals and Congress debates worldwide, from the direct voice of the authors to the links to their papers. We hope that this window will allow you to see the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought across the world. Far away, so close. Happy listening! This episode was created and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini. Introduction recorded by Frank Andrade. In today's episode, our guest is one of the most prominent authors in our time, Dr. Fred Bush. He will speak about his new paper, Self-Criticism as a Lifeline, thanks to his clinical vignettes and to his sharp description of the mechanisms that rule the need for self-criticism, he will lead us to discover a kind of patient that is different from the one that generally manifests a sense of guilt and melancholia. We'll see that if they are not experiencing criticism, these patients encounter the fear of a terrifying void. Because here, self-criticism is a way to hold on to the primary object. Fred Bush, Ph.D., is a training and supervising analyst at the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute. Dr. Bush has published over 70 articles in the psychoanalytic literature and four books primarily on the method and theory of treatment. His work has been translated into 10 languages, and he has been invited to present over 160 papers and clinical workshops nationally and internationally. He has been on numerous editorial boards. His last two books were Creating a Psychoanalytic Mind, A Method and Theory of Psychoanalysis, published in 2014, and in March 2019, The Analyst's Reveries. Explorations in Beyond's Enigmatic Concept. He's currently editing a new book, Dear Candidate, Analysts from Around the World Write Personal Letters to Candidates. The title of this podcast is Self-Criticism as an Unconscious Lifeline. There are patients one sees in psychoanalysis where criticism surrounds them like a cloud. A good example is from the beginning of a session with a patient who has enough awareness at this point to observe the way he is drawn to self-criticism and anticipates criticism from others. Patient, did you give me a bill last time? I hadn't. The patient continues, I couldn't remember. I searched all around the house but couldn't find it. I thought you must have given it to me, and I felt like a real fuck-up. Then I realized I could bring my checkbook and pay you, but then I forgot my pen. Here one can see the degree of self-criticism that is already attached to the analyst and the session. As this ever-present self-criticism is something we've been talking about, I start to feel critical to Mr. A for not realizing what he just described to this, then realize he's inviting me to think critically about him. I then said, so you come in already connected with me via self-criticism. Mr. A, I can see how critical of myself I am, but sometimes I think I'm not critical enough. Me. 
So you're critical of yourself for not being critical enough, Mr. A. Funny, or maybe not so funny. As soon as you started talking, I had an image of my mother's face as she was criticizing me for still another thing I hadn't done the way she would have liked me to do it. End of vignette. Of course, patients who are self-critical and anticipating criticism have been known about for some time in psychoanalysis. What I hope to show in this talk is that patients I'm describing are driven by a different but not unrelated dynamic to what has been described before. The basis for what, for what I'll be outlining can, and I think needs to be, differentiated from those patients racked by guilt, suffering from melancholia, or who rely primarily on projection as a defense. However, there are shades of each as part of the symptom picture I'll be describing. Thus, while the symptoms in the patients I'll be talking about are similar to other forms of pathology where criticism is prominent, I hope to show that the underlying causes are different in the cases I'll be describing. In essence, the patients who feel the, the need for criticism as a lifeline seem to have experienced the mother who is viewed as the more powerful parent and is idealized as intelligent, competent, and beautiful and charming. The, patient, uh, the child's basic physical needs are provided for. However, most striking is that most of the time the mother is experienced primarily as emotionally absent and whose main affective connection with the child came via being critical. A child's tendency towards egocentric thinking leads him to wonder what he's done wrong that leads the mother to be so distant and leads to a lifelong unconscious identification as someone who is difficult or, in more extreme cases, as hated. The patient's identification with the mother's critical view as the difficult or hated one and who anticipates criticism from others keeps the mother present and serves as a form of ground zero for the patient's stable connection to life. When not experiencing criticism, these patients experience the fear of a terrifying void. This is what makes the identification so difficult to give up. Its identification as a lifeline is central to the outcome of the treatment, the patient picture. In general, these patients first appear as functioning neurotics. Like others in this category, they seem to do well enough professionally, have stable relationships characterized by criticism, but little, get little pleasure in their accomplishments, whether professionally or interpersonally. While this picture characterizes many patients we see in our practices, the specifics are different for these patients. For example, Mr. A came to treatment after an anxiety attack 
when he won a prestigious award in his field. Over time, it emerged that at that moment, he could no longer see himself primarily as an annoying little kid and had frightening images of being alone on an isolated island in the middle of a vast ocean. Something similar to this dread of being totally cut off from human contact is what leads the patient's need to desperately cling to self-criticism or unconsciously induce criticism from others. It is a way to hold on to the primary object. It is different from melancholia, where self-criticism is based on criticism of an object turned inward, with the patients I'm describing. Self-criticism is based on a primary object's criticism, plus the child's fantasy of why the primary object is so cold towards them. What emerges over time in these patients' transference is the way they silently take the analyst's observations as criticisms. And if they can't help but experience the analyst as helpful, they know in their own mind the analyst really thinks of them more critically. While support of their healthy narcissism is necessary, it does not help the patient in the long run, as it threatens their inner connection to the one and only lively primary object, that is, the critical mother. In my countertransference reaction to these patients, what might ordinarily seem like a defensive reaction or a small rebellion against the frame has left me feeling denigrated and led me to make observations with a critical tone. In addition to unconsciously inviting criticism, it's an identification with the critical mother. Most striking, these patients don't seem particularly upset when I enact, when I enact a counter-transference reaction by expressing something with a critical tone and sometimes even welcome it. When I'm able to step back and say something like, it seemed to me that there was a certain sarcasm in what I just said. The patient acknowledges hearing it, but dismisses the idea that it was meant critically. That is, a lifeline has been established and can't be broken. From another perspective, these patients may act in ways that bring about criticism. For example, one patient's body odor was so bad I had to use an air cleaner during sessions. These patients also have difficulty experiencing love or praise as it threatens their lifeline. When the analyst points to a discrepancy between the patient's perception of a world as critical, for example, colleagues at work, and what seems like a colleague's support and praise. The observation is rushed past in a torrent of words that leaves the analyst befuddled as to how we got to this point, and thus he becomes self-critical for his inability to understand his patient. 
what emerges over time is that the patient comes to realize he becomes anxious and is silently dismissing anything the analysts say that appears to have even the slightest positive element. The patient's anxiety might be seen in a mental startle reaction that leaves the patient briefly silent before associating to some way he acted badly or was reacted to badly. While initially the patient presents a picture of his mother as good enough, over time the patient reports comments that the mother has made to the patient that seem very critical and demeaning. The patient seems to have no reaction to these comments and remains close to his mother. When the analyst first observes that some people might take such remarks as critical, the patient sloughs it off with comments like, she means well, or she was just saying it for my own good. Over time, it becomes clear there is severe anxiety with even observing, let alone questioning, the patient's connection with his critical mother. It is not uncommon for the analyst to believe that the patient unconsciously married someone just like his mother or worse and wonder why he stays in the relationship. It's only after understanding understanding the patient's need self-criticism that one begins to sense the ways the patient brings about criticism and is critical and dismissive himself. Early attempts to help the patient search for the cause of his self-criticism will most often lead to the intensification of the patient's self-criticism as his, quote, badness, end of quote, has been discovered. Let me now give a very brief clinical vignette. This vignette is the continued the continuation of the session with the patient described in the beginning of the paper. As a reminder, the patient came into the session connected to me via self-criticism over what he thought he didn't do, pay the bill, and generally felt he wasn't self-critical enough. In my reciprocal transference, I began to feel critical of him. As I was talking, an image came to his mind of a particular look on his mother's face when she criticized it. The session then continued. Mr. A, I've been incessantly playing this online chess game. I both really enjoy it but feel guilty whenever I play it. Like yesterday, I played for an hour before starting work and then criticized myself for doing it when I have so much to do. It doesn't help that Anna, his wife, also criticizes me for playing chess last night instead of reading in the living room with her. He continues. I also watched a documentary over the holiday on eating a low-protein diet and tried to eat that way for the next week. I started to feel physically strange. Mr. A then started to struggle to explain how he felt, and then told me how he felt he had more energy, felt more virile, and went 
back to the gym to exercise. So it came clear to me that the strange feeling he had was feeling good. He then started to question his good feeling as having anything to do with his diet and suggested it was probably a halo effect. I then said, I think it's important that what you label as strange was feeling good. And then we're drawn to criticize yourself for thinking this good diet had anything to do with what you did. Mr. A then recounted an image an incident that happened when he was about seven. At a gathering of neighbors, he and his brother were in a corner of a room telling fart jokes. His mother heard them and started criticizing him in, in particular and then launched into a number of grievances she had toward him before she sent him home. His brother wasn't admonished. He was angry at his, with his mother at first, but then wondered if maybe he unconsciously knew his mother might hear him and how she disapproved of these jokes. It seemed like it could be a potential insight, but also a form of self-criticism. The scene of his mother being critical of him or absent had played out throughout his life. During his early, early years, his mother was beginning her acting career, and he was cared for by a series of nannies. Most of his act interactions with his mother were experienced by him as of her pointing out that he was falling short of her expectations. At an earlier time in treatment, I had the feeling that for some reason his mother saw him as a, quote, bad seed. End of quote. Neither his older sister nor younger brother came in for such criticism. He pointedly remembered trying to figure out how they were behaving and mimicked it in the hopes he could avoid his mother's criticism. But the next section is called Analyzing Criticism as a Lifeline. How do we begin the analysis of a symptom that is associated with terror of giving up a lifeline. It is the same question we face in analyzing any symptom or character defense, although the frightening feelings vary. Further, how do we differentiate criticism as a lifeline from other forms of self-criticism? I have found the answer to both questions begins with the underutilized method of clarification in the here and now of the session as described in my 2013 book, Creating a Psycholytic Mind. The goal of a clarification is to depict how self-criticism takes place, not why, thus beginning the process of containment by building representations. By building a container via words, we help the patient face the terrifying process of losing a lifeline. As expressed by Green, we quote, we bind the incohate, end of quote, and containing it, thus giving a container to the patient's content and quote, content to his container, end of quote. In this way, we give the patient a better opportunity to explore 
the why is a criticism by slowly muting the feeling of terror. As it is more difficult for patients to see how they might invite criticisms from others, especially in the transference, counter-transference, we start out by helping the patient see how relentlessly self-critical she is. As the patient is likely to take this as a criticism, we need to be alert to the signs of how this occurs. It is only over-repeated clarifications that a container is built. It can be helpful if we use analyst-centered clarifications that can aid in minimizing the sting of clarification that the patient will take as a criticism. It's a variation of Steiner's analyst-centered interpretations, where clarifications begin with something like, I notice or have the sense that, rather than what I call you are interpretations. For example, we might begin a clarification with something like, I have the impression when, some, when someone is critical, you seem to accept it, rather than saying, you readily accept criticism. We hope that over time, the patient will be able to observe her tendency to self-criticism herself, thus beginning the process of further analysis. At a later time in the analysis, when the ties to self-criticism are somewhat loosened, we can more directly clarify it. Eventually, we need the patient's associations to help us differentiate the dynamic and genetic understanding of criticism as either a lifeline or some other ideology. Clarification is, of course, only the beginning to analyze the unconscious dynamics at the basis of self-criticism. In summary, what I've tried to point out is a specific dynamic to self-criticism, different than other courses. For other perspectives on self-criticism, one can read Freud on mourning and melancholia, Arthur Wallenstein on those patients attached to pain, Shen Gold on patients who suffered from soul murder, and Klein on the paranoid schizoid position. Thank you for listening. For any further inquiries, contact me at drfredbush at gmail.com. Thank you.